Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What's up, everybody? My name is Garrett Morlang. Hey, everybody. I'm JJ Prudhomme. And we are the Super Gamer Boys. And we are the preeminent video game podcast in the entire world. We are trying to take over the world with all of our comedy, with news and whatnot. And we are so excited to be members of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Yes, we bring you uh, all the news you want to know every week. We bring you movie reviews, game reviews, uh, and all the goofs you want to hear. So come check us out every Wednesday on your favorite podcast service. This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey, yeah, you. Did you know that ArtCast is on Patreon? Go check out patreon.com slash ArtCast for ways to help out the show and get some sweet perks in return. It could be something small such as our $1 tier to show your support. Or join one of our higher tiers to get a shout out, pick an episode topic, or even be a part of the show as a special guest. Even just sharing our show to your friends goes a long way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash ArtCast. Thanks for helping us and keep it retro. What's up, Argonauts, and welcome to another Retro Gaming Podcast. This is Arcast Mini, number 38, and I am here with a couple of very special guests. Uh, it's Corey and Lori Cole, who are known for creating the Quest for Glory series. How's it going there, Coles? <laughs> hi there. Yeah, hi, this is Corey. This is Lori, of course. Of course. We're all ready to uh, work on games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned before, like you're both very well known for making the Quest for Glory series, and uh, certainly like a long history with that. Um, but uh, first, I wanted to kind of get into like the beginning of your careers here. So um, I know that you're both big role playing fans, uh, particularly Corey with Dungeons and Dragons. Um, what's the story and how you two first met? Both of us were uh, fans of different variations. Lori uh, played uh, AD and D, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, there was no AD and D back then. So Lori played a variant called Arizona D and D. Which somebody had created that was basically a stat-based game that you had no levels. You simply went up as you gained experience for everything you did. So people who played uh, Quest for Glory uh, might find that a little familiar. That uh, It was a pretty uh, wide deviation from the original Dungeons & Dragons system. So I, uh, I grew up with the original. Uh, first discovered it on uh, the uh, Plato uh, system at University. University of Illinois. I was actually at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and we had an experimental system with that. Uh, went out to visit some friends at uh, uh, Champaign-Urbana, and later went to work in Chicago and uh, found a, a group of uh, gamers there that were playing D&D and said, oh, this is just like that Plato game. That's awesome, yeah. So I guess you both kind of like started like um, started like dating and all that, like you know, just like through I guess like both of of, of like your love for like old school role playing games in that sense. Then yeah, 
pretty much. Although at the time I was living in California on an Indian reservation where Arizona. I was teaching Arizona, yeah, Arizona, and an Indian reservation, and Corey was over there in California. So we had a very long distance relationship for the first few times, but we met going to conventions to play D and D. Uh, but it was kind of fun because uh, you know Lori was already a, a pretty skilled writer, and so she'd write these uh, flowery, really interesting, uh, you know, we just sent postcards and short letters uh, initially, but, uh, uh, you know, hers were always really interesting to read. So I did my best to uh, step up and try to do something similar. Hmm. Uh, mine, of course, got a little silly because uh, I was always self-conscious about it. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you both have uh, have like a book out that's like on like your careers or anything, but, you know, I'm just going to like pitch like a title out there, A Match Made in d and I'm just going to throw it out there. So. <laughs> um, but um, I know that you, that you both worked in Sierra as well, actually, and we've had a Sierra episode not too long ago with Metal Jesus Rocks. Um, but uh, I'm curious to hear both of you talk actually about the studio as well. So how would you both describe what the culture is like while working there? Well, Sierra was a roller coaster ride, which is what we normally characterize it. We made five games for Sierra, and each game that we made for Sierra was under seven. seven well, five. And five quests for glory games, two others. <laughs> and yeah, keeping track there <laughs> was a totally different situation. It was totally different culture. It kept evolving as it went along. It was sometimes a good place to work, and sometimes it was a terrible place to work. It just depended upon the game we were working on at the time. Yeah, we got in there because a, a friend of ours who we knew from uh, D&D and science fiction conventions, folk singing, Carly Hawk's daughter, uh, was the uh, lead animator on King's Quest Four, And she said, uh, they're looking for a role-playing game. And, you know, I know you guys can do it. Um uh, and uh, we went in there expecting to be, uh, you know, pitching a role-playing game to them. And instead, uh, Ken Williams said, uh, oh, you know, the Atari ST programming, huh? I'll hire you as a programmer. Hmm. So it was, uh, it was, you know, kind of weird from the beginning. wasn't quite what we expected. Yes. And I got hired on later to do the design for Heroes Quest, which became Quest for Glory. Right. And um, Laurie, I know you did like a lot of like the writing for that too, right? Yes. Yeah. So my, I, uh, my way of designing it is by mostly by creating the basic stories, the plot, the thing, and then all the dialogue for the games. And then I see myself as uh, more the puzzle designer. In fact, the uh, game we did in between Quest for Glory is uh, Laurie did mixed up fairy tales, uh, telling stories of fairy tales, and I did one called Castle Dr. Brain that was uh, all uh, puzzles and uh, uh, you know, logic, uh, mm. arithmetic. That was more like the full Corey game in that sense. And yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, although, uh, after I, uh, completely broke down at the beginning and couldn't figure out how to do anything, uh, uh, Lori came in and consulted with me a little bit and helped me get on blocked, but that's, that's just normal writer's block. So I, f- I feel like my contribution to uh, quest for glory was, uh, coming in and saying, uh, okay, we got this nice story, but you know, we need some gameplay in there. What's, what are some puzzles we can put in? And, uh, uh, what's what should the combat system look like? And, and how like the that. how the system works, and how the combat system worked, and and how stats work, because we were we did create a stat driven game where you constantly improve as the game goes on, and that's a lot of balancing that needs to be done to keep the game feeling like you are challenged, but and you are never you know overconfident and overcompetent at doing this. So there's always something more and something to scare the hell out of you. (laughs) It kind of amazes me in hindsight that game balance worked at all because uh, we really did not have nearly enough time uh, to uh, 
polish these games. Sierra really rushed them out the door. Right. I mean, it was definitely more of like a wild west of game development back then, for sure. So um, I, I could totally understand that. Absolutely. And um, since we are on the quest for glory games, actually, uh, I was kind of curious, like, what were some of your biggest influences creating those games? I, you know, I guess like aside from Dungeons and Dragons. We drew heavily on mythology and uh, we drew on the culture of the places we set the games in. From the start, uh, I knew I wanted to do a, a series, and I knew I'm, I wanted to take it to different places and different cultures and explore the different mythologies, the difference in how the world is when you go to a new place. And, and of course, Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and uh, The Hobbit. Of course, uh, yep. We, uh, we started out with the uh, first game. We wanted to have different cultures. We decided... That might be a little difficult for players. Uh, so we uh, uh, started out with going to uh, medieval Europe, and uh, I had spent uh, a year in school as an exchange student in uh, West Berlin. So uh, we uh, said, uh, okay, let's make this a, a little German uh, town. Mostly because we wanted players who came from an adventure game background and had no real basis in, in the, the lore and the things that we knew uh, to be familiar with the background to be familiar coming in and think oh i know what's going to happen here i've got some you know uh past experiences in games they're all set in this kind of thing all these stories come from it and then we could put in all the twists and turns mm. so like were like any of the stories that you were coming up with when um you know during your D D days uh, were those also kind of like reflective to like the stories that you made in the quest for glory games as well um, not really, but what we did incorporate from our pre-Sierra days was that we had been writing a, um, a newsletter, effectively, well, a small magazine for D&D fans for uh, Mensa. Okay. And uh, we had created a comic strip in that uh, thing, a regular comic strip with two characters, a uh, wizard named Erasmus and his familiar uh, Fenris the Rat. And we read, later on incorporated those characters into our game series. Yeah, so I wouldn't say we took any of the storyline out of that, but uh, the personalities of, uh, you know, the, the crazy old wizard uh, who's not quite, you know, maybe uh, not really senile, but <laughs> not quite all there. And the uh, rat that uh, keeps him grounded. Yeah, so we makes fun we of him. just brought the characters into the game world. And what we brought to the game world from all the D&D games we had run and, and created over the years was how to do a game. I mean, and how a game should be run. We've got the pacing of how a game should be put together. All of this experience that we had playing games, we later incorporated into uh, our computer games. And, and that the player must be the star at all times. Right. So um, was there like a particular design philosophy that you followed that, that was like prevalent throughout the series? Well, our basic one was, A, players must have fun. B, players must feel like they're challenged, that when they accomplish something, it took every effort that they had to accomplish it and feel like it was accomplished. And then, then we have the next thing that's even more of a challenge. And three was that the players should feel like they are immersed in the world so that the interface should be as transparent as possible so that he doesn't think, oh, I'm in a game. He really feels or she feels like that's my avatar there. That's my <laughs> character on the screen. I am that character and I am making these decisions for myself. And uh, pacing wise, we took a lot of tips uh, from uh, films and the idea that uh, you need to have uh, a rising action line. 
Uh, but again, we use that uh, roller coaster metaphor that uh, Lori said was, you know, what it was like to work at Sierra. It was also, uh, we hoped what it was like to play our games, that you would uh, have this rising tension and feeling like, uh, you know, you're really in a, a dangerous and difficult situation or maybe feeling like there's a puzzle there and you just don't know what to do. And then the exhilarating moment of, uh, you know, excitement uh, when you have, say, a combat and you're, you know, fighting for your character's life and then the release and joy afterwards uh, uh, that, uh, yes, I can do this. So it's uh, all about uh, appealing to the player's sense of uh, mastery. Yeah. So like um, you've, you've mentioned before also like about like how uh, there's definitely like a focus on challenge as well as like the narrative and all that too in the, in, in, um, in your games. My question for you then in, in, you know, in that case is like, is there like more of a focus on like the challenge or on like telling a story or are, are you just like trying to find like whatever that perfect balance is uh, you know, like with those games from before? I'd say the balance uh, because, uh, you know, Lori normally started from, you know, we started by coming up with a setting and then she would come up with characters that belong in the settings and we'd brainstorm in that. And then I like to think of it as a, a plumbing exercise uh, <laughs> that uh, we have these series of uh, pipes and some of them are, uh, you know, right angle connectors and so on. So as we went through the story, I would say, okay, what is the point in the story uh, where the stranger coming in from the outside uh, can really serve the critical purpose? And he'd be, be the juncture in the pipes. Uh, and, you know, what does the player need to do uh, that will help the other characters and be the, uh, the critical point in the story? So we tried to find what were the most important story beats and put the player there. And above all, the whole concept that runs through all of our game series, in fact, is that the the player really is the hero, that the player does push things and change the world around him. It isn't just discovering things and doing things. It's, it's, it's changing things. Yeah, so we want you to uh, come out of one of our games feeling as though if you had not been there, uh, the story would have ended very differently. Right. So what you did was important, meaningful, uh, impactful, and that you had fun doing it. Is it fair to say also that the Quest for Glory series uh, represents the evolution of computer gaming? Uh, can, you know, considering that like there was like transition from like um, from like floppy disk to CD-ROM and 2D to 3D graphics. Um, you know, just because like obviously like with uh, I think there were like five games in the in the um, in the Quest for Glory series, uh, it, it seemed to kind of cover the gamut in that case. It definitely did, and that's what I said. Each game was a totally new experience when we were creating it because the whole ground rules of what we needed to do to make a game changed out from under us. Mm -hmm. And of course, we didn't have any sort of lofty ideal that we were, uh, you know, changing the world of uh, gaming. But in a sense, we did in some ways. Uh, we were actually told that uh, a role-playing, you know, mixing role-playing and adventure, adventure gaming uh, together would have no audience whatsoever. That the adventure gamers would hate the role-playing parts and role-playing gamers would not uh, stand for the uh, adventure game parts. Uh, and, uh, you know, we wanted to prove them wrong. No, not prove. <laughs> we wanted to show them how this could be done right. Yeah, mm. and, and, to do, and to do it right. Uh, and, of course, you know, this, this all sounds very serious so far, but uh, the other thing, of course, is uh, 
Uh, we looked at the, uh, you know, the first uh, art uh, concepts and so on that we got in from our artists, and they were completely different from this uh, serious fantasy adventure we had uh, envisioned. They were very cartoony and, uh, you know, lots of solid colors and so on, pastels. Uh, and we said, you know, this this story and that art are not going to work together. Uh, so at that point, that was uh, when one of our programmers, Bob Fishbach, uh, put the first pun in the game. And I said, yeah, that's it. We need to... <laughs> Uh, we need to keep this important and serious storyline, but uh, there needs to be humor and lightness and and puns and fun to it as well. Is that just like kind of speaking more to like your own uh, sense of humor, or is that is that just like just just because you feel like you know the story just kind of needs those moments of brevity, really, like in order to uh, in order to like you know work and kind of like you know hook people in, have those highs, lows, all that stuff. Well, we initially thought, you know, we had a few characters that were humorous. We were just going to treat this as grand fantasy, and it's all going to be very dramatic. Big and adventure, then, yeah. <laughs> but, but with cartoony-looking characters, that drama is kind of lost. Mm. And so, therefore, what we did with every game is the team helped to determine how the flow and the feel of the game went. So since Bob Fishbach was very good at making jokes and things like that, and our art style was that that shaped the, the whole series to become much more humorous. It wasn't too difficult for me to get into that mode of writing. Uh, I used to have a, a button that I wore around uh, that said, uh, incorrigible punster, do not encourage. <laughs> so puns is really like your kryptonite in a, in a lot of ways. Like if there's like a good pun, then you're just like, just, just belly laughing at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like uh, my, my father once said there are no actual uh, outgoing people that uh, really were all introverts at heart. Uh, but some of us, uh, uh, you know, try to push out of our shell and uh, come across as extroverts. Uh, so I think uh, I've always used humor as a way of breaking out of my shell. Puns are like pulling teeth. You know, <laughs> we have a lot of puns in our games. And when I write them, it I have to sit there and think and work and try to say, OK, well, I want something to work with this. And it just is so really hard to make a good pun because it has to have context and it has to be a surprise. Mm, pun for the soul in that case, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but as far as, as general and mixing uh, uh, the serious and the humorous, if you think of any of your favorite uh, uh, films, uh, I think you'll find that any of the, your favorite dramatic films there's always some humor in there because you need something to cut the tension and to uh, sure, uh, yeah. give you moments of release. Otherwise, it's just too heavy. I mean, like the Marvel movies, I feel like are very good at doing that for sure in terms of like incorporating yeah, humor oh, in like moments like when things are just like to seem like super grim or like the villain is like about, you know, looks like he's about to like win or whatever it may be. Then all of a sudden this kind of like this joke comes in and certainly yes. uh, I would say Guardians of the Galaxy is uh, certainly like the prime example of that, like where it basically ends in a dance off. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But even something like Lord of the Rings, where you've got the darkest, most serious uh, uh, high fantasy story ever, you know, has... Uh, you know, the hobbits and the main characters, and you've got uh, things like uh, getting bored and playing around while, uh, you know, Gandalf is trying to find the way to cave and uh, knocking, a, you know, a suit of armor down a well, uh, which, uh, you know, roused the Balrog, yeah. okay? I mean, so that, you know, that ridiculousness that turns in, you know, again, into even more serious, puts him into greater danger. Uh, but, you know, first, it's a little bit of slapstick. Every, every great literature, all of Shakespeare is, you know, uh, I mean, he wrote comedies and dramas, but even his dramas, comedic moments. 
Now, um, obviously, since you two have worked together pretty much like throughout your entire professional careers, um, do you find it easier or harder working with someone you're you're already so personally attached with? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Working with anyone's hard. Working with somebody that you've worked with all these times just means it's harder. Yeah, nobody nobody likes criticism, uh, but... You also, you, you always need checks and balances. So our big check on uh, uh, the beginning of uh, Heroes Quest was uh, our producer, uh, Gruka Singh Khalsa. Uh, and, you know, we always felt like he was the person who was in there to bring us down to earth and make sure we realistically fit into budgets and schedules and so on. Uh, but with each other, you know, we'll come up with, uh, I will say something just completely ridiculous and off the wall that clearly does not uh, belong in the game, and Loria will say, "Yeah, Corey." Uh, but then we'll say, uh, uh, "Oh, but what if we did this with it?" Uh, and then we'd go back and forth for a while, and eventually, you know, after a knock uh, knockdown dragout fight, we'd come up with something that actually works. Let me like frame the question this way. Then, in that case, um, so just like from each of you, then uh, in, in terms of uh, you know, in terms of the other, um, what do you find to be, I guess, like the hardest thing in order to reel the other person back from like like something that they're really really like adamant about like you know about like adding in or maybe like their style or whatever it might be um that you know that okay we need to pull that back a bit in order to uh, make this work well after the drag out fight generally we go back into our corners and sulk for a while and then uh after that sulking uh usually it's my turn to figure out how to actually use part of that and make it work with the world so Lori's uh, Lori, I think wants to do everything, and you know wants the uh, degree of perfection, realism that uh, uh, you know every case is covered, and so on. And so uh, you know she tends to have too much scope to it. Uh, and I have the uh, problem that exacerbates that whenever I write anything, uh, Lori tends to be very terse with her writing and writes very uh, short sentences and so on. I say, well, we kind of fill this out a little. Uh, and then I tend to write vastly overblown prose that uh, Lori, uh, you know, if we do an article or something, Lori needs to edit out about half of it. So is it fair to say then that you're basically like two sides of the same coin in terms of like you kind of fulfill each other, but like you're 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 more or less kind of like uh, working in the same kind of fashion, right? You fulfill me, Lori. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's uh, I'm, I'm the romantic. She's the realist. Uh, yes, and uh, honestly, I'm the one that's going to be doing most of the actual physical writing, and Corey's doing most of the uh, the the core design for the game. So we are a team, effectively. We don't duplicate, but we have we can duplicate in many ways. But we have our own roles in doing these things. Yeah, and in terms of uh, working with the team, I tend to be the person that uh, uh, does a lot of uh, the non-creative work of. Uh, you know, paying the bills, uh, uh, making sure we have the team members we need, uh, schedules, work with stuff. But, you know, and in a sense, that goes all the way back to uh, before we were at Sierra. I'm the one that, uh, uh, you know, dragged Lori into it because I'm the one who said, hey, you know, we should write games. And at that point, uh, I would then get lost and then Lori would actually write the game. Right. So. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. So at least at least she kind of like reels you in a bit there, but you also kind of help reel her in like a little bit too, just in different directions in, this, in the case in order to find that middle ground, basically. So yeah. uh, Lori's great strength is uh, characters and dialogue. Uh, so she tends to envision the game as, uh, uh, you know, it's being developed entirely in dialogue. And uh, 
uh, I'm I'm there to put in the uh, the interruptions, uh, mm. which are the uh, the puzzles and the uh, uh, you know the combat and the mechanics uh, uh, that kind of interrupt the dialogue, but kind of give frame it and give context to it. The more gamey parts, basically, yeah. Yeah. Back in 2018, you worked together after a long hiatus uh, to create the Quest for Glory spiritual successor, Hero U, Rogue to Redemption. Uh, what were some of the challenges you faced bringing this type of classic adventure title into the modern gaming market? Well, 2018, of course, is the biggest challenge because we didn't obviously didn't start working on that in 2018. That's when the game released. Right, yeah. But uh, uh, we had actually started talking about that around... Uh, 1999, something like that. Oh, wow. Uh, doing the game and had gotten serious about it around 2002. Uh, Lori, uh, uh, with uh, author uh, Michelle Baker, uh, wrote a, uh, a juvenile uh, uh, fiction novel uh, called How to Be a Hero that was uh, you know, inspired by Quest for Glory. And uh, Michelle said, oh, we should have a website to promote that. Uh, and over the course of many, many... Uh, you know, years and transitions. That's what eventually evolved in saying, "Okay, let's uh, uh, let's do a school for heroes. Oh, let's make it a university. Let's do Hero University." And that became the game. So, 2012, we started getting everybody, uh, just dozens of fans, uh, come to us and say, "Hey, you guys got to make another game." And, uh, <laughs> it's been too uh, long. <laughs> yeah, and so we uh, funded the game on Kickstarter. Uh, uh, and just had totally realistic, unrealistic ideas what we had to do for that, but uh, somehow managed to get a few thousand of our uh, uh, closest uh, friends and supporters to uh, help us uh, make the game. And then it was six years of hard work to actually get it onto the market. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, I, like I think that's like the part that a lot of fans in general, just like gaming fans, really just don't realize as far as like how long that game development can take, depending on like what what sort of like challenges that you face and all that. Um, so obviously with, you know, like with, with, with that fact that, you know, that like from concept to like when it actually released, I mean, that's, was that almost, uh, 20 years basically, uh, when realistically we, yeah. 10. <laughs> well, most of that background was dropped and redone for this. Gotcha. Okay. We had, I mean, when we did the Kickstarter, we thought we were going to be doing a roguelike game when we came into the Kickstarter. We said, okay, let's do a simple kind of puzzle game that has some role-playing uh, aspects and some little bit of adventure story thrown in. And that's what we pitched when we went to Kickstarter initially. Yeah, I started playing uh, Rogue on a, a mainframe computer when I worked at uh, Olivetti and way back before Sierra. In the Dark Ages. Yeah, like 1980, <laughs> thereabouts. Uh, and love that game. And uh, then they came out with an Atari ST version. So Lori uh, got on it. Uh, so he said, you know, okay, we'll do a game like Rogue, simple. except... We'll do a nice, simple, easy game. Yeah. One we can get done in, in uh, a year. Except we don't do nice, simple games. Well, yeah, so we said, there, we'll do... there are no nice and simple games, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> we said, we'll do a roguelike game with story. Yes. However, uh, when we went to Kickstarter and started to get, uh, you know, fans to come in and support us, the fans that were coming in and supporting us were all... People who had played Quest for Glory and really, mm. really most severely 
wanted another quest for glory game and not a roguelike game. And of course, you know, in our heart of hearts, we really wanted to make more games like Quest for Glory. So we weren't too hard to sell on it, other than the fact that the budget we asked for the Kickstarter was fine for making a roguelike, and it was not close to what it takes to make an adventure game. So we did very, very well. We got over $400,000 raised on Kickstarter. Uh, but uh, Quest for Glory 5 cost $4.5 million to develop. Mm. So we were not close to an adventure game budget, but uh, uh, you know we still wanted to do it. I mean, that actually like reminds me a lot, actually, of um, Michael Mendheim, who made the Mutant League football and Mutant League hockey games. And um, when he went to Kickstarter, actually, to make Mutant, uh, Mutant Football League, and I believe it was originally a mobile game of some sort, and it was basically nothing like what the original fans wanted. So it got like a lot of backlash in that case. Um, I'm not sure if you received any like backlash for that or, like original idea for what you had in mind for the Kickstarter. Well, mostly we had the opposite. We had the, oh, yeah, I'm really out to see Quest for Glory. And nothing mm. that we actually were saying was <laughs> actually getting through that we were the expectations. It. I mean, we couldn't disappoint them. I mean, that was the point. We had fans. They really wanted this. And we really wanted this. So somehow we were going to make it work one way or another. Kind of funny because, uh, you know, we constantly get this thing about, well, what I really want to see, you know, it's nice you're making these games, but what I really want to see is Quest for Glory 6, you know, a new, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> new Quest for Glory. And we're like, why? Okay, I mean... Don't you uh, want something new? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not just that. It's that, uh, it's that Quest for Glory is just a name. And in fact, it's not even the game the series started with. It started as Heroes Quest. Uh, and uh, to us, you know, the, the core concept of having a uh, role-playing and adventure gaming and humor uh, all in a game is, you know, is what it's really all about. And that we could call it Timbuktu, and it would still be... Well, no, all right. The real thing they're asking for is they want to be back in that world. They want that character that they... They want to be their their character character, back in the world. That's what they were asking for. Another continuation of the character they were doing the same kind of things. Continue the story, yeah. Yes. And honestly, in game number five, uh, Dragon's Fire, we had given that, that player conclusion. We had made them, if they chose to be, king of, of Marit, and, and he, they had accomplished everything they needed to accomplish mm. for the whole series. And to me, I did not really want to say, okay, now that you've done everything that you ever wanted to do, oh, all of a sudden there's something else that needs to be done, and all that heroic work that you just did... Oh, uh, that was just backstory. Uh, maybe we kind of did that every game anyway. Yeah. So yeah. we really wanted to give the player a new experience. And we, we said we were doing a Quest for Glory light game with Hero U. And what we did was give them a very different kind of experience, drawing upon all of the things, the lessons we had learned over the years from playing different games and from the mistakes we made in Quest for Glory. And many new mistakes. Many new mistakes. <laughs> we have, you know, we... Because we didn't sit back on our laurels and do the same old thing that we had done before. So Quest for Glory 5 was really made to be the end of the franchise in that case, right? Yes, and even then, we did talk even then that maybe we could revive the series by going with the kids of the hero. You know, Mm. the kids of the the person you played. And then going on a whole different series of adventures. So it is possible we could have continued the Quest for Glory series. Yeah, I think we had at least three different paths we could have followed. We were talking about maybe making some expansion packs. Yeah. Uh, and that would have uh, had you uh, going out on the uh, Med Sea and fighting pirates and uh, maybe be sort of a uh, 
uh, Jason and the Argonauts uh, uh, type thing. Kind of like a side tail. Uh, so we did have ideas. And we, also, and we also had the idea of starting over fresh and having an entirely new Quest for Glory series uh, set in the Orient. Hmm. Okay. So we had other ideas. Well, we always have ideas. We're really, really good at coming up with story and idea. It's getting somebody else to actually fund these stories and ideas is the problem. <laughs> that's yeah, the tricky part, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also finding enough time. If it's going to take us, uh, uh, you know, several years to write a game, you know, how many uh, how many games can we put out? Right, uh, we, right. We can't make every idea we have. Now, if we, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to, you know, if we won a major lottery, won about a few hundred million dollars, uh, then maybe what we could do is... Uh, uh, we could be there in our ivory tower and uh, <laughs> uh, give some other uh, writers and designers uh, our great ideas and have them make games. So there's a lot of a lot of people uh, have come to us over the years with their great ideas, and, uh, and we have to kind of splash cold water on them and say, you know, the ideas uh, is the one percent of the game. Uh, the the ninety nine percent is, uh, you know, it's like Edison's uh, inspiration and perspiration. Well, hopefully we have some angel investors that are listening right now then in order to help you, you know, make those dreams a reality in that case for sure. I can promise you that whatever you invest, you'll probably lose most of, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but you'll help to bring something new to the world, so it'll be worth it. And uh, traditional point-and-click adventure games actually haven't been prevalent in the gaming industry for a long while, at least like you know being like the massive genre that it was years ago. Um, where do you see these types of games in the future? Uh, with every every new media that comes along, I mean, when the phones came out, the the point-and-click game became nothing more than hunt the pixel games, which we'd had years and years before. Hmm. Some of them, uh, but uh, like I just watched uh, the. Uh... Uh, the panel that was at uh, PAX East where they talked about adventure gaming. Mm, and right. a point that one of the panelists made, uh, really good, you should watch it. Uh, it's on the uh, Classic Gamers Guild on Facebook, has a link to it. Uh, but uh, one of the points that uh, one of the panelists made, uh, the, the guy wrote uh, Lamplight City, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. Uh, but uh, he uh, he asked the audience, he said, between 18, uh, <laughs> 1880, uh, 1980 and 1990, <laughs> there were 309 adventure games made according to uh, Moby Games, uh, uh, point-and-click adventure games. And how many do you suppose were made between 2010 and 2020? Mm. You may have also asked about between 2000 and 2010. Basically, we, we've all said, okay, adventure games are dead. They all died uh, after uh, you know 2000 uh, and got replaced by Doom and Quake and stuff like that. Over the last 10 years, there were uh, something like 1,220 new adventure games created. Well, is it fair to say, though, that like those point-and-click adventure games more or less got replaced, I guess, by the more narrative-driven games, like from like, uh, from, like Telltale, from like Life is Strange, and games like that? I, I don't think so. I think that uh, what's fair to say is that they're much more diverse than they used to be. Mm. You know, Telltale was really working off the model of like Secret of Monkey Island, uh, and then uh, and then turning it into a... Uh, you know, episodic structure, kind of like a TV show, yeah. Uh, and but there's, you know, there's a wide audience out there. Everybody wants something a little bit different. There's, there's room for a lot of different uh, things. You know, I think in the uh, uh, '90s that we were kind of stuck into fantasy gaming, and there were, you know, a few other games like Space Quest said, "Okay, we can also do f science fiction." Uh, 
and uh, Police Quest said, you know, we can do, uh, you know, gritty police realism. But those were the rare exceptions to, you know, like 80% of the games were fantasy. Right, right. I guess that like makes sense then, like why the, you know, why the Quest for Glory games as they went on, you had like these different settings, basically. So it allowed you to kind of uh, expand and get away from the usual Tolkien fantasy kind of setting. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. And that's what we wanted to do. We really wanted to take the player on this magic carpet ride across around the world to different worlds and different mythologies and expose them. I mean, effectively, your player, your character in the game is just like you. He comes into these places with no knowledge of what he's going to find and learns as he goes along. And your player learns as they go along. Because really, there's a lot of stealth t- learning in our games. We want the play the player to feel like they really had meaningful experience while playing our games. And, and of course, it was also good for us because it helped keep excited about what we were doing. Uh, because you know, we immersed ourselves in the culture for each game as preparation for it, uh, and the idea of you know, uh, you know, not just being stuck in one little valley for a you know 17 game series, but instead. Uh, you know, every game going to a new environment, a new region, and uh, having the culture from that and, uh, you know, research a little bit of language and everything else, uh, you know, kept us uh, uh, fresh. That's fair, yeah. Um, And you mentioned before, actually, Corey, uh, about like the number of adventure games that you could think of, like the traditional adventure games anyway, that you could think of that were that, you know, that came out between 2010 and now. I don't know if there were like any like particular like point and click adventure games that did come out in that time frame that, you know, that you're both like fans of at all. So we have not played most of the modern adventure games. There's like the longest journey. Uh, Our Heroes Quest was a uh, was done by a a fan who had worked on some other games. So, you know, she's semi-pro. Uh, but uh, from what we hear is an excellent game that was done in the spirit of Heroes Quest uh, and uh, uh, is free. So you should definitely check that out, uh, but we haven't played it yet. Uh, we did for one of our uh, uh, our live streams, we played uh, Mage's Initiation, uh, Reign of the Elements, and played about two-thirds of the way through the game. And uh, that's you know that was a game that was definitely inspired by Quest for Glory and uh, has the role-playing as, as well as the adventure game. That's, that was a lot of fun. We met uh, Dave Gilbert of Wadjet Eyes, really good guy, and uh, mm, you know, yeah. it looks like he's done some really interesting things with games. So he has a big following for sure. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of his and like the Blackwell games and all that stuff. Like he's just like does like amazing work for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, because like I'm thinking too, like as far as like more modern like point and click adventure games. I mean, obviously there's Thimbleweed Park, uh, made by Ron Gilbert, and also Dropsy comes to mind too. I'm not sure if you like know about Dropsy. If you like, if you know, if you play Dropsy at all. Uh, no, I haven't seen that. I did uh, play just a little bit of Thimbleweed Park. I was a, a Kickstarter backer of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ron Gilbert and Tim Schaefer, we met through various uh, conferences and stuff and, uh, you know, really uh, have a lot of respect for them and like them. So uh, we definitely tried to support their games, too. We're, we're glad they made that that comeback, uh, you know, which would have gotten a little bit of the success uh, that... Uh, uh, Broken Age got, back. but in a sense, you know that he ran into trouble too because uh, Tim Schafer uh, with uh, uh, Broken Age, you know, had in mind a very limited scope game that uh, uh, he had a relatively small ask on Kickstarter uh, that was higher than any game uh, to that point, but it was small uh, compared to the actual expense of making one. Right, uh, yeah. and then the fans came through and. Uh, just you know, showered him with riches, and then his uh, uh, four hundred thousand dollar ask he actually made three point three million dollars. Uh, and he discovered that uh, 
you know, once he said, okay, we'll make a full-blown adventure game instead of this little prototype, he discovered that, oh, yeah, they're even more expensive to make now than they were then. Uh, so I actually talked to the former CFO of uh, Double Fine at one point. He said, yeah, the actual total budget for that game was $8 million. Oh, wow. Okay. And we said, huh. So inspired by that, we asked for 400000 got 400000 and then we were trying to make a full adventure RPG in that, and that wasn't enough. I mean, for Broken Age, is it fair to say that like maybe like a lot of that budget went to like the voice talent as well? Because I know it had like some all star talent like attached to it. So and overhead, you never think about the overhead. Mm. That's a huge part of your budget. You know, all of these programmers and these artists that you hired to do this thing, even when they're done, you can't just fire them. So while they're waiting for design and programmers twiddling their thumbs or artists waiting to have a script thing that they need to do something. They're, they're, you're still paying them. Yeah, and we're running into that situation now. We're working on uh, a game called Summer Days at Hero U that's uh, supposed to be a smaller, tighter uh, development project uh, than Rogue Redemption. Uh, and, uh, you know, have that all worked out. And as a result, the programming is done. Uh, and we've still got uh, six or eight months of uh, writing to do on it. Uh, the art is will be done in a month or two. Uh, but we don't want to lose our programmers and artists. So we have to immediately start on another project and get them going in that, or we'll lose them. Uh, and Double Fine is a company that actually, you know, is in a physical building and they've got a team of, uh, uh, you know, several dozen people uh, that I think probably expanded up to about 100 to make Broken Age. Um, and we're working with, uh, uh, we actually had 40 people, I think, that worked on Who uh, You Rogue Redemption. Uh, but kind of the core team at any given time in the development was about 10 or 12, uh, but spread all around the world. Yeah, I mean, because I know with, with Double Fine, uh, they're owned by Microsoft now. So, I mean, like they have that Microsoft money back in them in this case. Yeah. So, the security uh, blanket over them. And they kind of had to do that because you know, that's one of the great successes of uh, Kickstarter and so on. But I don't know what they made a lot of money from because it cost them so much more to develop than they actually got from the Kickstarter. Right. Right, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. They did like the uh, uh, Grim Fandango remake and uh, mm. uh, took all the profits from that and poured it back into uh, Broken Age. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, with um, Grim Fandango, Full Throttle, I know, is another one. Um, Day of the Tentacle as well. Yeah, so yeah, it make, makes sense with all that. Um, and so, like, I know that you mentioned, like, with like Summer Days. Uh, so, what else can you tell us that fans can expect to see from the Coles in the near future? In the works, we have uh, uh, Hiroyu Wizard's Way. Uh, where you'll play as a wizard character instead of as rogue uh, and complete the different storyline but same setting. Uh, Which is an extension directly from Rogue to Redemption. Yeah, and uh, the idea in that is to do uh, games with uh, different specific characters than to, uh, uh, you know, really uh, put everything together and uh, pull out all the stops in the last game and have you be able to play all the characters and have storylines that, that need all, uh, all those roles mm. uh, for the fifth game. So kind of like uh, hoping for Hero U almost to be like the next quest for glory in a sense as yeah. far as like this being like the next yeah. franchise that you really flesh out and you know have it go in all sorts of different directions. So if we uh, if we end up suddenly getting riches uh, thrust upon us, then uh, Wizard's Way is probably the next game we'll make. Uh, if not, we have a, uh, a game that is uh, uh, inspired in part by a series of short stories that Laurie wrote uh, back before we started Sierra, back in the 80s, uh, called uh, Consulting Magicians. Uh, and uh, also by Castle Dr. Brain. So we want to do a game that is very heavily puzzle-oriented, uh, but also has a strong story behind it. And that will be 
uh, a darker uh, kind of a mystery fantasy game. We think that'll be a lot of fun and something that I'll be able to play a little bit more uh, of a role in the design than I have uh, a previous game. If you'd like to send us any feedback, opinions, retro games, or topics for us to cover, or anything at all, really, you can email us at ardcast at retrozap.com. And be sure to check out retrozap.com for all sorts of other amazing podcasts. It's your home away from home if you're crazy about Star Wars, Animaniacs, or pop culture in general. There's also us with Arcast, so be sure to find us on iTunes to subscribe, give us five stars, and tell your neighbors. We're also on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Music. So there's absolutely no reason to not follow another retro gaming podcast. And uh, where can people go in order to find the Coles online and like all your games and all that stuff? Uh, I would say the main place is uh, hero-u.com, uh, hero hyphen letter u.com. You know, that's our site for the Hero U game. And uh, it needs some work. We're doing some revamping on it. Uh, but that'll let you, you know, uh, tell you tell people a little bit about the games and tell them where they can uh, buy them and stuff like that. Rogue to Redemption is available on Steam. And, yeah, it's and, called uh, uh, hero-u colon Rogue to Redemption. Far too long and cumbersome a name. <laughs> have never put punctuation in a game title. But it's still <laughs> available on Steam and yeah. itch.io. And, uh, and, uh, and, yeah, Steam, itch.io, GOG.com, yeah. uh, Fireflower Games. So all those uh, uh, have Rogue Redemption. Uh, we are working on, uh, we've just completed a uh, uh, French language translation. So we're going to be uh, re-releasing it uh, in French. We're working on German. Mm, okay. Uh, Yes, I mean, Rogue to Redemption had a uh, dialogue and vocabulary that was, uh, how many words? It was uh, 450,000 words, which is basically, uh, you know, the size of uh, a Game of Thrones uh, novel or, uh, you know, one of the later Harry Later Potter Harry Potter. So all of that amount of wordage, which I write, (laughs) has to be translated into another language. So it takes a while to do this. Uh, which is also why we chose not to uh, do voice acting in the game. We didn't want to do mediocre voice acting. And with that amount of dialogue, uh, you know, it would have been very expensive. Right. Uh, we would like to uh, bring voice acting into the future games. Uh, which means we have to keep our scope realistically smaller. Yeah, I mean, with like, the amount of dialogue, I can certainly imagine that for sure. Basically, because I don't write a straightforward the narrative i really am a game designer rather than a, a, a screenwriter yeah. yeah absolutely yeah it's all part of it for sure so uh cory laurie thank you very much for speaking with me here and um yeah that is our mini number 38 in the books and until next time keep it retro Chris Wilson. And I'm Dylan Gregory. And we host Backstage Gaming, a weekly podcast about video games and storytelling. We both play pretend professionally. Sometimes on stage with other people. And sometimes alone in a soundproof room. So join us every Monday while we talk about games, acting, and how a story comes together. Backstage Gaming. 
Dramatic takes on your favorite games. Part of the HP Video Game Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.